Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 8th of November 2010. I always start off the show by suggesting people go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and you'll find hundreds of talks I've given over the past for a free download. They're in audio form. All those sites you see listed on the front page, you should bookmark them in case you find sticking on the com site. And sometimes I'll have even uploaded to the com site and Yahoo pulls it. After an hour, that happened this weekend, in fact. So if you have these alternate sites, you can always get the latest shows. Now, they all carry a lot of transcripts, too, for print-up of the talks in English. And if you want transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watts Sentinel, sentinel.eu, and take your pick from the choice that's available for, for languages. And pass them around to your friends, too, because really, people... Even with the internet, you know, it's surprising how much you can do on a one-to-one basis with people when you first meet them. And remember, too, that you're the audience that bring me to you. I don't ask for or accept money from advertisers so far. I may have to eventually, the way things are going. But um, you're the audience that bring me to you by donations and purchasing the books and discs I have for sale. And that's what keeps me going. That's it, basically. And I get a freer hand to go through the whole hour uh, without bringing on guests who are often really selling. And that's the way people make their money. That's the way it works. There would be no radio stations at all if it wasn't for commerce and advertising and so on. So the ads you hear on this show are paid by advertisers directly to RBN for the broadcast, and it pays their staff and their equipment and their bills. And so you have to help me with mine by purchasing the items and so on. I got it at cuttingfreebitish.com. Or donating. I mean, people forget who they can donate. And uh, it doesn't matter how much you can afford, a dollar, two dollars, who cares. Uh, And it it will add up in the end, hopefully. It will will add up at the end of the month when the bills come in. Because it takes a lot of cash to put all these sites up here. And this is more than a job. It's it's not a job, believe you me. It's, It's beyond even a vocation. It's a necessity to get information out right now, at least for posterity, if nothing else, so that someone somewhere can teach some child how the past really was and how we really went through the changes and why we went through the changes, who, who made it happen, because nothing happens in this world by itself, and you'll find out we've been guided by a hand for an awful long time. From the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can order the books and so on with a personal check, and you can use an international postal money order from your post office. You can use PayPal to order or donate. If you want to to purchase with PayPal, send a separate email after the, the donation with your name, address, and your your order on it, and I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, of course, you've got the same options with PayPal. You also have Western Union, which is kind of steep. You can have uh, MoneyGram, which can be wired, or you can get a check from MoneyGram and post it off to me in Canadian dollars. They'll do that on the UK side or the French side or wherever. And some people will send cash, and that comes through as well. Well, that's that part of it over. I don't like to push it all night. Uh, 
how bad things are economically. I'm sure we all know it too. And lots of the, the people who email me regularly have lost their jobs over the last while. Some of them have lost their houses as well. And uh, big shakeups in the U.S. and elsewhere as we start to feel the pinch of the so-called bank crashes that were nothing more than just time to burst the bubbles. That was all and bring every, all the first world countries down into a lower status. And the status was designed long ago that once you'd finished off financing the third world countries up into being prosperous and so on and manufacturing like China, and that's what we paid for all of that. Of course, the Chinese did not do it itself. We even trained their engineers before they had factories in Canada and the States. And that's how it's really going. We're going to do the same with India and others. Back with more on this topic when I come back from this break. Hi, folks. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, you know, Obama was over in India there because India has been promoted through the World Trade Organization, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and all the other big boys that are globalists to be the next up-and-coming country, along with Brazil, and they'll match China eventually and India too. But remember, too, the World Trade Organization was the, the ones who brought us GATS that allowed all the factories to move to China. And, and so this is not going to be a great deal for America or anywhere else to build China, uh, India up as well. Never mind the incredible benefits they're given through the World Trade Organization. They don't have to bother about pollution and all these restrictions, etc., etc. And any remaining businesses in America and Canada, uh, if, if you can count them on your hand probably, who uh, want to move over there for the cheap labor and all the grant money that comes in from a thousand sources, uh, will be paid by your tax money transport over there. And if the companies themselves claim that they have lost money during the last 10 years while they're over, they can extend their term of uh, handouts and grants for another 10 years or more. The same, same deal as China got. So here's Obama. And, and I love the words. I, I don't know who his speechwriter is for this one, but they surely put him on the stage and just forget Obama. I've always said that with politicians. Why bother with them when you've got the speechwriters there who wrote, write the speeches, the guys who know the agenda? But he says, speaking at a town, this is from the Times of India, speaking at a town hall meeting in Mumbai, he said, I do think that one of the challenges that we are going to face in the U.S. at a time we were still recovering from the financial crisis is how do we respond to some of the challenges of globalization? The fact of the matter is that for most of my lifetime, and I'll turn 50 next year, the U.S. was such an enormously dominant economic power. We were such a large market. Our industry, technology, and manufacturing was so significant that we always met the rest of the world economically on our terms. And now because of the incredible rise of India, and that's a term for it, incredible. See, it's not rising by itself. It's just time to do it now and pump all the money in. And all the, the UN grants through the foundations get pumped into that too. And they've got all their members out there raising cash for, for projects in India. Uh, and then it says, and China and Brazil and other countries, the U.S. remains the largest economy and the largest market, but there is real competition. So get the message here. Competi- you're going to compete with China and India, folks, in our dollar a day. Yeah. This will keep America on its toes. No kidding, you have no shoes. Uh, America is going to have to compete, it says. There's going to be a tug of war within the U.S. between those who see globalization as a threat and those who accept we live in an open, integrated world. It means interdependence, it's another term they use which has challenges and opportunities for a few, I shall add. 
The U.S. leader disagreed with those who saw globalization as an unmitigated evil, but while acknowledging that the Chindia, that's China and India, factor had made the world flatter, he said protectionist impulses in U.S. will get stronger if people don't see trade bringing in gains from... Well, if you look at the balance of trade for the U.S. for the last 20 years, since they built up China through their grants and all the rest of it, they paid China to get, them up, not, to get off their feet. They paid them to stand up. The West paid them. And remember, that was a long goal, the long goal for the Royal Institute for International Affairs-CFR, going back, back, back further, the Milner Group, as they called themselves, and the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, the, who really brought in all the big foundations, the parallel government globalization. And remember, too, how Kissinger uh, defined uh, what Americans saw as terrorism, and he said it's those who oppose globalism. Remember that. Anyway, he says here, the speechwriter that wrote this for Obama, if the American people feel that trade is just a one-way street where everybody's selling to the enormous U.S. market, but we can never sell what we make anywhere else, then the people of the U.S. will start thinking that it's a bad idea for us. And it could end up leading to a more protectionist instinct in both parties, not just amongst the Democrats and Republicans, uh, so that we have to guard against, he said. Uh, he pointed out that America, which once traded without bothering to put uh, barriers up, uh, by partners, could not promote trade at its own expense at a time when India and China were rising. There has to be a reciprocity in our trading relationships, and if we can have those kind of conversations, fruitful, constructive uh, conversation about how we produce win-win situations, I like these terms used, win-win situations, they're like fads that go through all these bureaucrats, then I think we'll be fine. Obama's remarks at the town hall meeting exposed his tremendous anxiety over the failure of his policies to spur the U.S. economy fast enough and create jobs for Americans facing nearly 10%, that's way beyond 10% unemployment. And most folk who are working that email me have got two or three jobs on the go, part-time jobs. Anyway, it says, however, his frank remark on the need for the U.S. to square up to Asian competitors may also suggest that the specter of action against outsourcing may recede as protectionist impulses may have to be balanced by the need to bag contracts to deliver more jobs in America. But it's interesting, too, he says here near the bottom, uh, that part of his job was to go over there to find work for Americans, to get jobs for Americans back home, I guess, I suppose. Or maybe we're going to be boat people right enough going over to India and China to see if they'll give us a job, maybe cleaning the dishes or something. So now he says, in this context of his efforts to revive the U.S. economy, that he sees, the president clearly sees, as he wrote in an article, India and China as key drivers of economic growth. As I say, they wouldn't exist as such if we weren't pumping the money in through all the agreements we've made all the, the massive donations were, were given to, via the UN, who then gets a lot of the big companies on board with them and they match, match dollar for dollar for investments in those countries. That's how they brought China up too. And that was planned by, before I was born to bring China up, by the way. Strange how folk can live through the changes and not even notice it. Most folk didn't even notice everything suddenly was made in China. They, they get their, their thoughts come through them by osmosis through the air or something, it just gradually gets in there some kind of vague idea. Yeah, China's the manufacturer. It's always been that way, isn't it? And, and that's as far as they think. Except for the ones who lost their jobs as the factories that laid them off and uprooted and moved over. Again, they paid the tax money in America and elsewhere to, to put the factories over and set them up. Quite something, isn't it? Eh? 
quite something. And it's another one too. It's quite quite, quite good release. See, there's, there's a dearth of news right now, except for the fact there's a lot of con games going on. One of the con games that I noticed was between the Greens, supposedly different factions of the Greens, um, and uh, environmentalists over some documentary it was made. But don't forget, this is all bogus. They have no fights and spats. They're as disciplined as the Communist Party always was. And um, they, they're restructuring to con the folk even better than they did before, rather than appear to be so hardline on, on every single thing, all on board with the same mantras. They've got to show us that there's some dissent amongst them. And out of it will come a new, a new gentler, greener authoritarian society, basically. But uh, as I say, so don't be fooled by these articles that are putting out there. Remember, the IPCC also said at the United Nations that it would um, have to restructure itself for the environmentalists and so on, and find a new way to present their, their, their information to the general public, meaning to go through better censorship and more factual data. Uh, with a spin on it that's more swallowable by the, the gullible public out there. That's how it really means. But, you know, everything is politics and cons. Everything that's going on is, is simply cons and politics. And if you notice, too, I've often thought about this. Isn't it weird that after going through a lot of documentaries about China and Russia and the slaughters that they had, the purges and slaughters on the people into the Millions and millions and multi-millions in every country were starved to death, killed, executed, all through their, their, their existence, actually. Um, you never hear any of the media come down on them for anything, because they were under the guise of communism. Like, communism is a good thing now? Is that what they're telling us? Nazism was bad. That's the only bad hat we've ever had. But, but communism was good. Have you noticed that? Because there's a lot of communists out in the open now. I mean, look at the guys behind Obama. Look at the guys who are behind Tony Blair and all the rest of them. And Brown. When they sang the red flag at the end of each session. It's up on YouTube and Google, by the way. You'll see all the big ones there singing the red flag, you know. That's the communist flag for revolution. All the top members of parliament. So it's fashionable for the communists to come out now and get on board with government, get appointed positions over environment and stuff like that, and communitarianism. But here's a, an article from World Net Daily, and it says, Oh, the irony, look who's calling you a terrorist. As former Weather Underground leader, that was a terrorist organization that existed in America, uh, the, the leader worries about armed tea parties. He's a former leader of the 70s protest group responsible for bombing the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, police stations and other targets is worried that racist, armed, hostile, crazy-making tea parties pose an unspeakable threat to America. Well, they should go back to drinking coffee or something, shouldn't they? If it's tea, it's doing it. Anyway, Bernadine Dorn, who with her husband, William Ayers, were leaders of the communist revolutionary Weather Underground, had been tied to so many acts of protest violence in the 70s that she was placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list and was described by Jai Edgar Hoover as the most dangerous woman in America. And they were setting off real bombs that were really killing people. Her association with Barack Obama notably led to Sarah Palin's famous comment during the 2008 presidential campaign that Obama had been palling around with terrorists. Dorn, however, told in an Indian News and Views website that she's concerned about a new breed of protesters, the Tea Partiers, 
whom she described as a hard right emerging, an armed new hard right with massive control of the media. That's amazing. Here's communists coming out in the open who were bombing people and uh, and hitting anything that's, that's changing the agenda. See, the agenda has never changed, folks. Remember, Professor Carl Quigley said that the Council on Foreign Relations was often mistaken uh, to be a communist organization, but he had the top bankers running it and financing it. Emma says, it's racist, it's armed, it's hostile, it's unspeakable. She says, white people armed, white folks, I guess she doesn't like white folk, demanding an end to this president is very crazy producing, she says. So she's creating a lot of hype nonsense. And here they are out in the open, these characters, these bombers and killers, because you see, communism was good, apparently. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, you get so sick of the same characters down through history and who who are always devious, they're always paid and lobbied by someone else outside themselves or, or that which you think they represent. But uh, how they so easily they cry for war is astonishing. It's so The way they easily cry for slaughtering. These people never take part in the slaughters, mind you. They always get your young people to go off and do it for them. And, of course, big business always profits incredibly uh, with supplying military and equipment. It's, it's all blown up. It's good because if each thing gets blown up, it has to be replaced, you see. Every bullet you fire has to get replaced. It's a great business. Every shell that's gone is gone. you got to get a new one. Every bomb that's dropped has to be replaced. It's fantastic business. And then, of course, you've got all that plunder with natural resources and so on you can steal from the former enemies, you call them. And uh, I've, I've seen so many reasons for warfare. It's just astonishing. In, in ancient times, they used to, the Romans used to say, we're going to tame the barbarians and civilize them, you see. And uh, civilization, of course, was awfully horrific because they slaughtered so many as they were teaching them how to be civilized. And nothing really has changed. We have always got a dominant minority. Huxley said so himself, and he knew this because he was part of one. And they've got their helper minority, the ones who were scientifically bred. And I mean that because Huxley touched on that too. That uh, just like the, the Plato's Republic, they could actually breed certain classes for certain works, and the guardians would be at the top. Well, they really had it back then, actually, and you see they have it today. It's, it's the same thing today. But here's a, a Republican senator who really, I guess, belongs with Bush there. It doesn't matter. They're all the same to me, to be honest with you, because they've all signed the same ongoing agendas and treaties and agreements to carry on through the United Nations. But influential Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina known for his radical militaristic views and support for the Israeli regime, said, my view of military force would be not to just neutralize their nuclear program, this is for Iran, uh, which are probably dispersed and hardened, but to sink their navy, destroy their air force, and deliver a decisive blow to the Revolutionary Guard. Now remember in the Bush here, they called it uh, a revolutionary democracy, invading to give them democracy, forced democracy in other words. Similar to the Catholic Church in ancient times, when they, they basically had people convert to the point of a sword. That was your choice. 
uh, even if you didn't, didn't understand what they were talking about, what kind of data they were talking about, made no sense to you, you had to nod your head or you'd lose it. And nothing really has changed. It's the same kind of thing today. So anyway, he's calling this uh, the Revolutionary Guard, even though there's more revolutions come out of America uh, to benefit other people, but never to benefit Americans. It says, Graham also sits in two major Senate committees of armed services and homeland security. So he's no, he's no some little guy with a wish list is up there with power. It says, in other words, neuter that regime, added Graham, who spoke at the Halifax International Security Forum on Saturday. He also complained that the current U.S.-sponsored anti-Iran sanctions are not crippling. I guess he wants to see them dying off in starvation and children and, and, and women and so on just like they did with Iraq, and Madeleine Albright was awfully proud about that before they gave her the job at NATO, where she still is, by the way. In another recent speech before a conservative U.S. think tank, the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, you never think these think tanks with the names of them were to do with war unless you understand that the term enterprise is very important to understand that term. Bless us on this enterprise. Better understand what enterprise we're talking about than the USS Enterprise and so on, the Star Trek stuff. So it says, Graham last September had once again called for a direct U.S. military intervention on Iran, insisting that it should not involve ground troops, but should be launched by U.S. warplanes and ships. He wants to bomb it out of existence. Iranian officials have repeatedly condemned, yet mocked the U.S. sanctions and described it as a great incentive for a major Iranian push towards progress and self-sufficiency. Because they've stopped all imports coming in, you see. Meanwhile, top Iranian leaders and military commanders have repeatedly undermined U.S. and Israeli threats of military actions against the Islamic Republic. I guess I love how they put it in Islamic Republic. Eh? They say it's not a race war, but they keep using terms like this. Very clever. Insisting that in case the U.S. engages in such an adventure, the repercussions will be severe and wide-ranging. Moreover, Iran has conducted numerous sea and air military exercises in the past year, showing off the capabilities of its new anti-ship, an anti-air weaponry. They've already got the plans drawn up to take out all of its infrastructure in Iran, just like they did with Iraq, and leave them literally in the Stone Age. Every every well will be bombed, every facility for for, for um, cleaning water and so on, and processing water will be destroyed. All their food production in uh, areas will be utterly devastated, and you'll have the same mess as you've got in Iraq, and that's what they want, actually. That's what they want. They can only be one, as you say. And they love that phrase. And here's an article, too, about um, the, the Observer in Britain, the newspaper. It says, How the Observer brought the World Wildlife Fund into being. It's, it's, it's 50 years since Julian Huxley, that's a writer of Aldo, the brother of Aldo, writing the plight of African animals and Observer inspired the creation of the World Wildlife Fund. And I'm going to put this one up here because uh, it's got different links off it to original articles in the archive sections of the Observer that uh, Huxley himself wrote. Remember, he was the first CEO of UNESCO. He was an ardent eugenicist. He was um, all for uh, culling off all the weaker types, Mr. Huxley. And um, he got all the top awards for, for pushing abortions and this, that, and the other things. All lots of nice shiny things just to cut his mantelpiece. But here's the music coming in. I'll read this when I come back from this break.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix talking about Julian Huxley, Sir Julian Huxley, of course, descent of um, uh, Thomas Huxley, the best pal of Charles Darwin, and this little clique here, who are all inbred, by the way, um, the Huxleys, Darwins, and the Wedgwoods, and the Bens, and, and the whole bunch of them. You're, you're, and so, by the way, was George Maynard Keynes uh, from the, the, the Darwin family as well, the Huxley Darwin family. But so they're all eugenicists, a whole bunch of them, and they, they all ran on this scientific formula. They believed they'd have to kill off an awful lot of people to have their wonderful paradise for their birds and stuff and all their little uh, alligators and things like that. Anyway, it says here that, um, according to Professor Lee M. Talbot, an American ecologist and geographer who traveled with him across the Serengeti in the 60s, Huxley, Julian Huxley was an uh, uh, enthusiastic, gracious, friendly, rather quiet but authoritative, remarkably knowledgeable but always inquiring and visionary. He was key in transforming conversation from a narrow concern to a worldwide scientifically acceptable movement. He says um, he was also, uh, into, he says in favor of decolonization, he was a scientist, ecologist, and a eugenicist. He knew conservation was about, about making a park than putting a fence around it. It was about social and economic contexts. And it goes on and on and on, but you can actually get the links off here to read the articles that Huxley supposedly wrote uh, for The Observer that kicked off. And then you see all the big players that moved in immediately to back him. It's all designed that way, of course, because the Royal Society has an awful lot of friends, and that's what you belong to as well. He also decided, too, to give you all your values for the children to come, and the sexual liberation to be taught at school, all that stuff, so it end the family unit. That was all part of it. He talks about that and his own writings, if you bother to read them. This great helper of UNESCO, he made sure there'd be a standard worldwide education, and that's what you've got today, a same culture worldwide. There can only be one, once again. And I'll put that up. Now, another thing is interesting here for those in the Far East there, because I've talked for years and years how the Institute, uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations, both the same group, by the way, one's just the American branch, had decided a long time ago to build up China in the 30s, actually. They said eventually after this war, the, one, the coming World War II that hadn't happened yet, uh, they'd eventually get a Pacific Rim region on the go, which would coincide with free trade with the European Union, which they would be working at hard too. Uh, and they'd be conning the public under the guise it's just a free trade agreement, you know. It's just a, it's just a free trade, that's all it is. Anyway, he, as I've said for years, they will integrate, and that's where they're integrating New Zealand and uh, Australia and all these countries under China and so on. So this article is uh, from the Apex own website, and it says, um, Yokohama, November the 8th, Apex, that's the Asian Pacific Economic uh, Community, it's a community now, just like the economic uh, community for Europe was a, a community very quickly, and now it's dominated by a Soviet parliament. Anyway, it says APEC senior officials have finalized recommendations for ministers, that's politicians and leaders, 
on a new economic growth strategy, possible pathways to a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, and a report on assessment of progress on the Bogor goals. They always have these different meetings, and they love these names of where they held them and where they signed the, the deals. Bogor. After two days of meetings, officials from Apex 21 member economies concluded discussions on the priorities to be presented to the ministers and leaders this week on these key APEC initiatives developed during 2010. The concluding senior officials meeting, uh, SOM, (laughs) senior officials meeting, the SOM, is part of a week of annual APEC meetings held this year in the Japanese city of Yokohama, including the ministerial meeting, a gathering of trade and foreign ministers, the CEO summit, the SME summit, maybe that's xenomasochists or something for executives summit, and the leaders meeting on the weekend. APEC meters, which account for 40% of the world's population, 44% of global trade and 55% of the world's GDP, uh, has been developing a growth strategy which sets a future vision for future growth in the region amid the changing economic landscape. Now, China's already gone into Australia to buy various businesses over, and this is all the same thing they're doing with Britain right now, in fact, as they sell off chunks of it. Against the backdrop of the 2008 financial crisis, APEC has developed a strategy which encourages improvement in the region's quality of growth. So they want to achieve a balanced, inclusive, sustainable, innovative and secure growth. And yada, 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 yada. Anyway, it's based on a different five-year plans, ten-year plans. Actually, one of the five-year plans was to end 2010. That's why they had this meeting just today, in fact. This is a report on the assessment of progress by APEC economies towards the Boer goals was also discussed. It was set up in 1994. That's we made the plan for 2010. And they've now renewed it in 2010. As I say, all the companies, what you think are communist organizations, do the same thing with 10, 20, 30-year plans. Based on the initial review, it seemed that the economies under assessment have made progress towards an environment that encourages trade amongst APEC members, says the SOM co-chair Hideo Nashiyama from Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. Thirteen economies, the five industrialized and another eight who have volunteered for assessment ahead of 2020. That's when the total integration will be up and running. Uh, no doubt of their own parliament then for the, for the Pacific Rim region, have undergone a thorough assessment to measure their progress towards the goals. A report will be presented to ministers and leaders this week, it says. So it says, uh, it's also been exploring possible pathways to a free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, or FTAAP, which is part of APEC's agenda on greater regional economic integration. Integration, folks, economic integration, does that ring a bell? to increase trade and investment and boost prosperity in the region, etc., etc., etc. And then you go into the, the I put these links up, remember, at cuttingsmatrix.com and in the show, read it for yourself. 1994, the leader's declaration then is on there from the Bogor uh, Institute, and they talk about free trade, integration, and all that kind of stuff there, just like the European Union. And that was the purpose of it too, and as I say, they have their five-year plans, 10-year plans, 20-year plans, and so on, and so on, and so on. And they call it a community now, just like the European community, you see, which is a sub-factor of the, the global community, I suppose, as well. I'll put that up for you to look at as well and peruse, if anyone's interested. And... This one I omitted last week because Britain and France have uh, done a sort of deal where they're now kind of uh, merging militaries and so on. 
including the building of missiles, and Britain does so much of the work towards it, France finishes it and so on. But Cameron and Sarkozy met together, and they're going to do something with the armies as well. It would seem long-term cooperation uh, measures and so on. But technically, it will mean that Sarkozy is going to be the, the chief of all the armies, obviously, since he's the chief of France right now. And he's a paratrooper because they parachuted him in for the job from elsewhere, I should add to that, as everyone knows. Now, I just love it about uh, public watchdogs in this lovely system that keeps telling us about equality and and honesty and sharing and stuff like that. And I haven't seen a watchdog yet that isn't more corrupt than the rest of them. Here's one here in Britain. The spending watchdog, this is a government-run institution, um, it rang up £4.8 million bill for hotels and used taxpayers' tax cash to fund a gay rights workshop for staff. So, a public spending watchdog lavished millions of pounds on entertaining staff parties and fine dining for its managers, it was revealed today. I love how they tell you to cut back and be austere and eat your imported rice, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Tighten your belt. And here they are having these massive parties, eh? It's just like ancient Rome, isn't it? They're out of hand at the end. It says here, uh, the event's funded by the Audit Commission for its staff, including a gay rights workshop, a Christmas party, an exclusive restaurant, and a conflict management course. <laughs> the Quangle, I guess it, the conflict part was to see how much you can put down your expenses. The Quango also paid £10,000 to sponsor a book to be published by the Smith Institute, a charity with links to Gordon Brown, which was criticised in a charity commission investigation for allowing itself to appear too political. More money went on landscaping the grounds around the commissioner's offices. Well, he's got to look, he's got to feel nice, feel nice when he's looking at that window. He's not got much to do, you know. So all the, these, you know, landscape gardens and stuff and flowers will lift his spirits. This is in a stakeholder briefing at a golf and country club. <laughs> the spending was disclosed amid the route of the decision by community secretary Eric Pickles to close down the Quango, which costs £230 million a year to run and has around 2,000 staff. Mr. Pickles, what name too, he's in a pickle now, he hopes to save £50 million a year by handing its work uh, auditing councils to private firms called outsourcing. According to figures released by the members of Parliament yesterday, the body spent nearly £4.8 million on hotels over three years, with a further £730,000 going on hospitality provided in its own offices. Amongst its payments was £15,025 to stop drama learning development for workshops using actors to illustrate race, gay and work-life balance matters while £3,851 went to Conflict Management Plus to teach managers at the Quango how to deal with staff difficulties. I guess that's when they're fighting over the loot. eh? Restaurant and hotel spending included £13,470 to Leith's at the British Library for an auditor's conference, £1,250 to 19 in New York for a staff Christmas party, three dinners for groups of members of Parliament, the Royal Horse Guards in Westminster, and nearly £20,000 for a senior stakeholder briefing at the new Connaught Rooms. But I tell you, they do pretty well with all this, isn't it? But they're the watchdog, you see, to make sure that all your money is spent wisely. As I say, it's just like ancient Rome, isn't it? It really is. It's just like ancient Rome.
Now, as we're getting ready for the big crunches to come, and, and it's really crumb, come because I've told you before that um, 20-odd years ago they started to combine military forces with police forces, and they called the, the multi-jurisdictional task forces. They even have them from Canada, from the police special units, and they dress them up like soldiers, and they go off to Afghanistan to get expertise in kicking down doors and killing people. And then they come back with their uh, experience back to Canada. And the U.S. does the same, and Britain does the same, and they all do the same. Because, you see, as we go into this wonderful integrated world and interdependence of the world, and, and you import everything but export nothing, because that's how the balance of trade has been for about 30, 40 years, then you're going to see that the standard of life go down. And five agri-food businesses, which are really all one with the same shareholders, will dominate the world with food. And that ties in with the UN because they want to dish out the food to its regions uh, under rationing systems. That is going to come. I'm not kidding you. And we haven't even been hammered yet with uh, all the money that we we had to borrow from Gonos. Who? I mean, who do we borrow the money from to bail out the banks? We know that we're all down, the taxpayers are all down as a collateral, the guarantee. You have to guarantee the payment of that over the next few generations, and um, or however long it takes with compound interest. And uh, this is the way it's going here. Anyway, then there's going to be a lot of hassle in all the countries. I've already read the articles from the, the military who have talked about outbreaks, not starting in, maybe in the Middle East and then spreading across the rest of Europe and America too. Well, they didn't say why, except it could be to do with food and jobs and stuff like that. You know, basic things, you know. So the Royal Marines, the commandos, take over Limstone Village as part of an exercise. This is in, I think, Devon. A village in East Devon has played host to an armed forces exercise. Host. I wonder if they had any choice no matter. The Royal Marines took over Limstone to learn how to respond to the changing nature of foreign conflict. Yeah, sure. Exercise called Final Nail 10. Organized by Limpstone Commando Centre, is thought to be the first military operation involving an entire village. Major Will Norcott said, We're trying to expose young officers to the complexity of operation in amongst a real civilian population. Most of the Royal Marines taking part in exercise are preparing to go to Afghanistan. Second Lieutenant Tom Lucy said, It's good to come to places like this and practice. You've got, he, he, let's see, listen to what he says now. You've got the civilian population, you've got the potential insurgents, I, I guess they come from Yorkshire or somewhere. And so it's really a good experience for us, eh? The potential insurgents and the civilian population. So it's a good experience for us. And, and believe you me, there's going to be riots down the road. They're all ready for it. See, they've been, they've been building up their internal armies for 20 years for this, for what they had planned coming. They planned the crash, they planned the bubble burst, it was coming out at the right time. And then Obama and the rest of them come out and say, oh, well, my goodness, American supremacy has just gone down the tubes. However, you've got to fight the rest of the wars and uh, pay up all the taxes and, and keep paying the World Bank and all the money lenders that were borrowed money from. And uh, once that's done, of course, we'll be the boat people going to China, I suppose, and India and Brazil looking for work. Yeah. yeah. yeah Jack Satali knew what he was talking about when he wrote that in his book. Millennium, top guy at the United Nations. But folk don't really care, really, they? because as long as they can get their junk food today and their, their, their GMO, and their, their, um, then they can go green and don't eat meat. It's not that you can call most meat you'll get at supermarkets the actual meat. I'm not sure what it is anymore. 
they've certainly altered all the, 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 the cattle and uh, the animals. You don't know what you're eating except it's full of growth hormones and God knows what else. But it certainly doesn't taste like meats. But we have to be meatless in the future, apparently. We'll be like the peasants of India have been for thousands of years. Uh, and uh, it keeps you just just strong enough to do your work, but not too bright uh, that you'll cause problems. And uh, not too strong that you might want to run off from your job. You'll be too tired at the end of the night to run off. So that's the ideal eugenic system. And there's also been a Memphis pilot who rejected full body scan pat down files lawsuit uh, and against the TSA. So he's a pilot taking a lawsuit against the TSA. And it says, the commercial pilot who rejected a full body screening and pat down at Memphis International Airport has filed a lawsuit against the Transportation Safety Administration. The plaintiff con- uh, contended the pending litigation seeks to dispute the constitutionality of the new policies under the Fourth Amendment. According to an October 27, 2010 WMC TV article, I guess, in a previous article called Memphis Pilot Refuses Full Body Scan Pat Down Stands for Privacy and Rights. I'll put this up to cuttingfreemates.com, this link. Michael Roberts, a pilot with Express Jet Airlines, filed a civil rights lawsuit after he refused to walk through a full body scanner or allow the TSA agents to frisk him. His refusal to comply with TSA regulations subsequently barred him from traveling to his job in Houston. He said, I'm not against airplane security, but this is not security in any stretch of the imagination. It's not reasonable when you walk into the airport and just because you want to fly on an airplane that they should strip search you or physically put their hands on your crotch or feel your body from top to bottom, explained Roberts. While the TSA would not comment on the civil rights lawsuit, a spokesman for the agency released the following statement. Advanced imaging technology is optional for all passengers. Passengers who decline to be screened using advanced imaging technology, x-rays that is, will receive alternative screening to ensure the safety of the travelling public. Anyone who refuses screening will be denied access to the secure area. So, it's our way or Norway is what they're telling you here. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. And I've talked before about the connections of these people and, and a, a reader did a little bit of research himself and I've got all this stuff somewhere too, but he's tying a few together as well, which I've, I've, I did the same thing. It's incredible how small a world it is. And he says it himself how small this world is when you start investigating. It says, I myself was doing some research into the connection of certain people, one with another, it's a very small world out there, it seems. One of these strange connections I found is of Charles Darwin and the Keynes family. The descendants of Geoffrey Keynes are descendants of the Darwin-Wedgwood family. Geoffrey Keynes is brother of John Maynard Keynes. That's the guy who gave you a present economic system. You know, borrow, 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 get any debt, get any debt, and help the banks out. Married the granddaughter of Charles Darwin. One of the descendants still alive of the Keynes family is Skander Keynes, in his Wikipedia article, it says that he's also a far descendant of Anne Boleyn, thus connected to Queen Elizabeth I and King Edward I. Uh, Skander is an atheist and an actor. John Maynard Keynes was a proponent of eugenics, having served as director of the British Eugenics Society from 1937 to 1944. As late as 1946, and his best pal too, Julian Huxley, 
because they're both on the same eugenics boards. Before his death, Keynes declared eugenics to be the most important, significant, and, I would add, genuine branch of sociology which exists. So, see, sociology is all about eugenics, folks. You didn't know that. That's what really is at the top of it. And that was just from the opening marks, the Galton Lecture, Eugenics Review 38, pages 39 to 40. Giant Keynes was highly homosexual, called the Negroes, you know what, nasty name, and knew Isaiah Berlin very well. Isaiah Berlin, by the way, is an awfully big player in all this, and he was a mentor of Tony Blair to bring in the communist world society where a rich elite would run it. And Isaiah Berlin also came up with the idea and theory of the two freedoms, negative and positive freedom. He says it's best to give the public um, a, a, a negative freedom. That's what we've been working on. They tell you very little, keep you in the dark, keep you pretty stupid, give you trivia. Where positive freedom, they get you to work with the communists working for a big cause, like globalism or environmentalism and all that stuff. And, of course, Tony, you want to know from this mentor if there's any way we could blend the two together. And, and have it work. So they still be pretty dumb and all the rest of it, but they still work towards a, a common cause, a better cause. You know, we're all in it together stuff. We're going towards a common purpose, a utopia, the future, after they've slaughtered an awful lot of undesirables off. So anyway, uh, people are doing their homework and they're finding the same connections over and over and over. I mean, uh, here's one guy running UNESCO, and here's a, a relative of his, John Maynard Keynes, giving you the Bretton Woods Agreement, giving you this whole farcical paper money system to live on now and nothing to back it, and compound interest, and who said the best way is to spend your way out of depressions by borrowing money, which, of course, future generations are going to have to pay. The same con game that is pulled on this last uh, planned crash, and it was a planned crash, folks. But Keynes also said this was part one, the Bretton Woods and the, and the system. Part two would come after he was dead, he said, with a world integration system where we'd spend money across the world and all the rest of it. So no more nations, in other words. All top commies. And again, John Maynard Keynes was one of the best pals and mentor of Victor Rothschild, who spied for Britain. Not Britain, actually. He was a spy on Britain. He worked to the top. In fact, he was the top honcho in charge of all the integrated security systems and organizations in the Cold War, eventually, he, he sold secrets to, to Israel and to Russia at the same time. So that's the wonderful crew that are still popping up down through time. With the same agenda, never changes eugenics and integration of the world, depopulation and so on. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you. <laughs>